find the beauty and the benefit of suffering. Because to suffer means to be touched by something. That sense of connection is probably the only thing that really carries meaning at the end of the day. Hello and welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with me, Clover Hogan. Our first ever episode is with Caroline Hickman, an eco-psychotherapist who has committed her life to understanding the relationship between mental health and the health of our planet. Caroline has been one of my great gurus and mentors over the past 12 months, and this was easily one of our juiciest conversations. In it, we dive deep into the mental gymnastics we perform to make sense of the world, the role of grief and loss, and how we can begin to face up to the climate and ecological crisis without losing our marbles. Caroline is not one to skim along the surface, so buckle up. I hope you find this conversation as catalytic as I did. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding of the strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. As an eco-psychotherapist, yeah. your research is largely around young people's sentiments toward climate change. Yeah. And you're actively working to build their emotional resilience in the face of some of these big, messy planetary problems. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. Ultimately, to build resilience. Yeah. But first, we need to really find out how they feel. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Under the surface, not just on the surface. Yeah. And so in line with that, you were recently in the Maldives yeah. interviewing children who were already experiencing the direct effects of the climate crisis. Yes, that's right. What was that like? Well, I've been there twice. So the first time was uh, about 20 months ago. Um, and then I went back a few weeks ago and... There was a, a huge difference in those two visits. This time, the young people that I met and talked with were very much more acutely aware of impending social and psychological problems. And they talked about the impact on their mental health directly. Whereas the first time, it was a little bit more distant and a bit more theoretical. But this time, the young people were acutely aware of the, not just the impact on themselves, but the impact on their community, on their society, on their country. And they talked with real feeling and grief and sadness about the loss of their country, as well as the impact on themselves. I mean, one of the things that really always strikes me talking to any young people in the UK or the Maldives is that empathy that they have. And it's not just concern for themselves, but it's concern for other children and other species and an awareness of the impact on the loss of their identity their culture. So the short answer is they're astonishingly wonderful and thoughtful and really attuned emotionally to how it feels. And we, we I use a particular way of uh, asking children and young people to think about this. I ask them to personify climate change. I ask them to imagine that climate change is an animal or to tell me a story about climate change. 
rather than go directly to how they feel about it, because obviously I don't want to traumatise children, young people, and I want them to also to kind of get under the surface of the sort of narrative that they get from the news media or their parents or from the school to really dig deep and find out what's in their hearts, you know? And what are some of the trends? Well, I mean, it's, it's nearly always destructive images. But what really struck me this time on my visit this time was the anger and the grief and the rage. I mean, one one young person said to me, these were mostly teenagers. They, they'd been, of course, they're really, um, they're on social media. So they're looking at stuff all the time. So they know what's going on in the world. And these children said to me, we saw on social media that they had a funeral for a glacier in Iceland this morning. But who's going to have a funeral for us? It's like the world doesn't care about us. So Whilst they could understand that there should be a funeral for a glacier, they they weren't kind of attacking people who were having that. They could understand. They felt enormous grief and disconnect because they felt like that concern from the rest of the world wasn't coming to them. Another child said to me, "This, this, this." They had to explain this to me because I didn't quite get the cultural relevance immediately. You might. They said it's a bit like um, living in the Avengers Endgame in the Maldives, and climate change is like Thanos, who is going to wipe out half the world so the other half can survive. They said, and we're being sacrificed. We're the half being wiped out. So when. Teenagers and young people and children sit in front of you and tell you that in all honesty. You know, they're not making this up. This is genuinely how they're feeling. And so that's rage coupled with despair. It's a, a awful combination. And a real sadness and helplessness. Not helplessness, that's the wrong word. Because they're not completely powerless. But they're frustrated that people aren't listening to them. And people are not taking their plight seriously. And that extends to other children, of course, in other countries like Bangladesh and the South Pacific, all these low-lying nations where the young people are just going to be at the forefront mm. of this disaster. That's it. And I think, at least in my experience working with students here in the UK, right. there is so much of that same anger mm. and also suffering experienced on behalf of the people who are already seeing the implications. What sort of, of things did they change. say to you? Um, they portray a really nihilistic, mm. dystopian view of the future. Mm. Um, I speak to my parents about the future they envisaged when they were our age, and it's one of flying cars and disease being eradicated. Mm. And you speak to young people now from as early as nine years old through to the age of, you know, 22, 23, and it's very much something out of a Hollywood dystopian blockbuster. It's streets plagued by famine, cities underwater, you know, entire nations disappearing. I've heard this as well. Yeah. I've heard this, and uh, certainly the children in the UK are using very destructive metaphors. They're talking about uh, climate change as a crocodile that's just going to eat everything. They're talking about climate change as uh, bug spray and people are the bugs. They're talking about widespread destruction. And you're right, it is nihilistic, but, but I also think it's understandable because if you think emotionally what we do when we're under that sort of emotional pressure, when we actually don't know what's going to happen. This is one of our problems, emotionally, adults and young people, is we're anticipating, fearing something that isn't quite happening yet. It's coming down the road. And of course it is happening in other 
parts of the world. Of course it is. So, you know, I'm not taking away from that. But a lot of the children in the UK are not feeling the impact of that. So they're projecting fantasies into the future. Now, when I say projecting fantasies, I don't mean that they're making it up. That's that's I would take seriously the way they're imagining it because that's one of the only ways they can engage with it. So emotionally, when we've got something presenting to us and we can't be sure what the outcome will be, we will go in one of two directions. We will fantasize or imagine that everything will be all right. So it'll be, oh, well, we'll be fine because the government will save us or, okay, well, we can just put screens in space or, oh, it can't be that bad, can it? And at the extreme end of that, you've got denial, right? Mm. And then in the opposite direction, you've got the nihilistic, apocalyptic destruction. So they're both flights from the reality. Yeah. And the reality is, which is unbearable, we just don't quite know. And we've got some facts, but we haven't got all the facts. And we've got the whole tipping points yeah. issue. And absolutely. And so on some level, we've won the war on denialism in the sense that, you know, climate crisis has shifted from the periphery of our collective consciousness to taking front and center stage. We're talking about it. And yet there's yeah. this there's this new manifestation of denialism, which I think, you know, evolves and manifests by way of environmentalists buying better reusable coffee cups and, you know, yep. technologists in Silicon Valley talking about Mars plans. Yeah. Um, what are what is that kind of spectrum of denial that you've experienced? And and would you describe these as coping mechanisms? Perhaps? Oh, absolutely. You know, when we're threatened by something, we have a number of responses. We can the fight flight response. So we assess the threat very quickly, subconsciously, and think, can I fight it? Can I win a battle? with that or we assess it and go no I've got to run away from it so you've got fight and flight um, but if you can't fight it or run away from it your only other option is freeze so you're stuck then not knowing emotionally how to engage with that so you kind of vacillate between these polarized positions and one minute a lot of people who are struggling with this one minute they're like oh it'll all be right I'm exaggerating but and then next minute oh it'll all be terrible and you go backwards and forwards between them there is a fourth one though which you're going to like which is you've got fight flight freeze and you've also got fib right mm -hmm. I'm being polite so you've also got <laughs> lying about this so you've got when you're talking about denial there are also there's also a deliberate policy of misinformation and people kind of taking one bit of a fact and twisting it into something else for socio-political economic reasons. And these are really hard to separate out because you've got strong feelings around them. So you start to get to a position quite often where you don't know who to trust, right? So then it's really, really difficult and people feel really vulnerable. And then the kind of the anxieties and the depression. So we've got to go somewhere with those feelings. We've got to, we can't stay in that uncertainty for very long. Or, well, if we can, that is a way through that. That kind of being with the not knowing, the kind of mindfulness, the kind of Buddhist philosophy of holding the tension, mm -hmm. uh, not needing to go and escape into any of those polarities. I, my, I want to come back to something you just said, though, right? It's the I, war on. I love is that. that isn't it? I saw you wink you at me. me right? yeah. it down. Exactly, and I. You and think we've won the war on denialism? Um, 
in the sense of, and I think even that language that I use, war on, is problematic because I think that climate change is in large part symptomatic of broken systems. And I think one of those systems is the way in which we've looked at this. And it's still very much an anthropocentric control dominion kind of complex about, you know, and that's why you have things like ideas of geoengineering coming up. Oh, we just need to change the chemical balance. And it's like, you know, (laughs) and it's like, no, like we need to, this is uh, not only do we need to transform, but this is our opportunity as a society to transcend and transform every part of how we live. I think that is, from my perspective, it's in the sense of how this narrative has been betrayed in my lifetime. Right. Um, And the degree to which we're talking about it, but coming at that also with the realization that I'm living in my echo chamber, my bubble. Mm. And, you know, this past week I um, was in Germany for a speaking tour and one of the conferences Mm. I went to um, was Demexco which is the largest digital marketing conference in Europe. Uh, Very overwhelming, 40,000 people all talking about uh, largely how to market to this new generation of consumers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm. and, you know, I I tried to be that kind of reactive voice in the mix, talking about climate change and, like, hello, like, there's this catastrophe happening. Like, this is, you know, it's affecting all of our lives and it's about to affect our lives in a much more pervasive way. Um, But it was really hard to break through with that message because, you know, we're just reacting to the daily nine to five. And I think really Mm. properly walking into uh, the reality and accepting what it is we've already inflicted on the planet and what we're continuing to do to our planet is too hard or too confronting for a lot of people to really look at Mm. and so we keep you know kind of dancing with this little dance on the side and detracting from what's really happening if i put that in a a slightly different language Mm. so if i go to the kind of climate psychology alliance um language Mm. of sort of depth psychology we'd be we'd be talking about uh the heroic culture which also, of course, ties in with misogyny and the Me Too movement and the masculine and the growth, growth, growth is good. So, of course, you know, there's responses to this emergency by saying, oh, well, here's an economic opportunity. Oh, let's just grow more and do more and fight it. And, of course, the masculine will have that response. Now, I'm not talking about this being gender. This is not male versus female. I think it's really important. And you're right, and that is what's led us into this anthropocentric, we are the supreme being, we are the ultimate culture. Um, It's very macho. And it is, I I liked what you said as well about the way that's a a betrayal of the the earth. But it's also a betrayal of the other, because the other is, of course, the feminine and species and women and children and it's the other way of doing things which is more lunar than solar so it's not kind of picking up the sword to go into battle it's a completely different way now that i'm not saying there isn't fighting involved and i'm not saying we should be completely losing that sort of masculine ability to fight when you need to fight you should fight but it needs to be balanced up with the other Um, Because that other then, if you can kind of go to that place, you can then connect with grief and loss and shame and guilt. And we would feel the sadness and the grief of what we've actually done 
to ourselves and to the planet. We certainly wouldn't be able to look at ourselves in the mirror when we cut fins off sharks and throw them back in the water, when we let children starve, when we throw live baby chickens into mincing machines, you know? When we when we've stripped the earth of all nutrients so we can't grow anything anymore, so we just burn down more forests to grow more food. It's insanity. But that need to exploit the earth and natural resources, only valuing um, the environment and earth and other species and ourselves, if we can put an economic price on it and say, you know, that tree is firewood, rather than seeing the tree and valuing the tree and recognizing the tree is just essential to the whole biodiverse ecosystem. So that's what's got us in this mess. And so how do we begin to look into the face of that despair Mm. um, and come out the other side having not been admitted to the psych ward? Mm. Well. How do we reconcile the fact that we are each complicit? If you think of a tree and the, the the, the trunk of the tree is like ordinary life and then you think of the tree and there are two branches. And you can go down one or the other. And one branch is um, madness, loss of sanity. And I'm not pathologizing that. But the other one is enlightenment, right? But they come from the same place. And that place is that recognition that we are not permanent. We are not here forever. We need to be recognizing that what we should be doing is investing in the future of children, investing in the future of others, about nurturing the planet. There's there's a, a, a line in a poem which I think is Rumi. He says, what have you done with the garden that was, was given to you? What have you done with, you know, this gift of life, but life that involved nurturing the environment, nurturing the other, growing food. What have we done with that? And why have we we been so arrogant and so frightened and so controlling and thinking that we could go against the laws of nature and continue to distort this for our own ends and then throw even more poison and even mine even more pristine areas of wilderness? why did we think that this was okay? Why could we be so deluded? Um, That has to be faced. And of course, the more we try to face it, or the more that some groups and communities, and obviously uh, Native peoples, Indigenous communities, are doing this day in, day out. You know, I was looking at the, the battles that they've been having in Hawaii over the mountain, you know, and the despair of that group of people trying to preserve that sacred, important space. We just need to be getting behind these people and valuing that and recognizing that without that, we are sunk. And that preserving that is more important than anything else. And then spiritually, soulfully, something might start to realign itself with what's of true value. What's really important here? That in turn would really start to redeem people's mental health difficulties and people's despair and people's distress. Because so much of those stem from our disconnection from the environment, our disconnection from the natural world, our disconnection from each other, our sense of isolation and not belonging in society and in communities. You know, people kind of feel 
like they just don't belong. And a lot of the time they don't belong because the society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. Mm. Look at what's been done to Greta Thunberg with her difference. She's got fabulous responses to her. But we know society needs to value people in all of their difference, all of their diversity, and value all the contribution that each person can make. So seagrass is my current passion. I'm obsessed with seagrass. Follow seagrass on Twitter. <laughs> because seagrass sucks up more carbon from the atmosphere or is more f efficient than tropical rainforests. And it's this little stuff that is really humble and really small that people unthinkingly dredge because they don't see the value of it, right? But if we started to see the value of seagrass, if we saw the value of each part of that ecosystem we would start to develop some wisdom yeah it's been interesting in my research so far because i've been looking at change makers yeah. and the correlation and the trends and interestingly across the board the age of 11 to 13 seems to be a pretty magical age right in that you know, for me, it was when I first started watching documentaries mm. and like this bolt of light from the heavens, experienced this conviction to be a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Uh, for my friend John Elkington, it was, you know, the age at which he made his first ever donation to WWF, mm. you know, um, almost 60 years ago. Right. Um, and so there's something really interesting here. And what strikes me, you know, living in an urban environment is is the word complacency, right? We become very complacent about um, our kind of disconnect mm -hmm. from the implications of our actions. And I think that's also largely living in increasingly globalized, consumer-led times, right? And, you know, in contradiction to that, I look at young people in that magical age and there's something there about moral absolutism. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to just say, this is wrong and this is right. And so I'm curious to know or to hear what you think about how perhaps we need to reconnect to the awe and wonder through which we see the world when we're that age, but also just the ability to call out what's wrong when it's wrong, while also holding within that the context of you know, not finger pointing, not not uh, entertaining this kind of blame game, but thinking about how we're rewriting the story as opposed to the individual characters, how we're going through this kind of systems transformation, and how we're inviting to pe inviting people to this to the opportunity that climate change, climate crisis poses. I really like you bringing in a number of things there. One of them is the idea of the story and the narrative. And I think that is, for me, that is absolutely one of the ways through this. So the Climate Psychology Alliance is not, we're not just psychologists and psychotherapists and psychoanalysts and psychiatrists. We've also got storytellers. We've got artists. We've got academics. We've got writers. We've got people who are poets. And, you know, so it's about using the imaginal. And it's about honoring that and when it comes to children um, my first answer would be don't suppress it in the first place because the majority of children are awake and alive to that naturally from an early age keep the imaginal alive tell stories keep the narratives being woven I think we need to be starting to weave new narratives for the new world that we're developing 
I'd like to think of us as creating a new world. And I know it's full of struggle and hardship. And I know that, you know, a lot of young people are feeling the emotional weight of that at the moment. But I also think that there are opportunities to create things now, which maybe weren't available to us before. And I don't want to be sort of misunderstood and sort of saying, oh, isn't it great that climate change is here and we've got all these challenges? Oh, and look how we can do something fabulous with this. You know, I am not saying that. But I am saying out of any adversity, there is the possibility of creative solutions and for something new to grow. If you can hold the tension, if you can hold the tension of the opposites, if you cannot collapse into depression and despair, if you can hold that pressure to allow a third possibility to emerge. And this is where we kind of have to get away from that kind of egocentric approach where we kind of think we can fix everything and we can do everything because actually, you know, we can't. Um, and that way, other, other ways forward can show themselves to us. So I'll give you a more concrete example. I'm working with um, a couple of other organizations, Greenpeace and the Presencing Institute and uh, the Climate Psychology Alliance. And what we're doing um, and linking it to my research at the University of Bath is we're trying to build alternative schools, street schools for children who are climate strikers. And we've been doing lots of conversations with children and young people all over the world about what they would like to see from an alternative curriculum. What would you really like to be studying? A couple of teenagers here said, in terms of geography, you know, don't teach us about Oxbow Lake. Teach, teach us how to deal with flooding, you know. Teach us how to build houses. Teach us how to build boats, things like that. So we've got that really practical side of things. How to grow vegetables. How to identify plants that aren't poisonous, you know. Really important stuff. But there's also a recognition from these young people that they also want um, emotional development. They want to learn how to campaign. They want to learn how to negotiate. They want to learn how to have difficult conversations with parents and schools and authority figures. Amazing. I know. <laughs> so cool. I know, yeah. I'm just thinking, well, adults need that too. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> we just kind of need the classes for us just as much. Um, but... They're, they want to know how to uh, communicate with younger children. So the empathy comes in and the emotional intelligence comes in. They want to they want classes in how to develop a global empathy and a global awareness of how to create global solutions to problems. Right. Yeah. We, they should be running the world. Of course they should. You know, um, um, they want classes on climate psychology, but they also wanted classes on storytelling and narratives. And we're going to try and run one of those in the UK um, next month where we take a group of children out and we start looking at ancient stories and mythology. And we start looking at what's happening in the world today. And then we start to create modern myths for the new world that we're inheriting. And that's a way of trying to shift back to what you were saying about this kind of apocalyptic nihilistic vision that young people have got. That can get woven in, so I'm not going to exclude that because I think that's part of it. But maybe that's not all of it. And it might give them the sense that they can create alternative futures for themselves as well. Yeah. Some autonomy, some agency, which brings it back really to what you're doing. There was something that you said in that that really caught my attention, which was around young people asking for lessons in how to build boats mm. and how to already begin to adapt with climate change and deal with the implications that are inevitable. Um, 
Do you think that's a kind of psychological shift that we all need to go through in the acceptance of what's to come? Because I know that, you know, I'm someone who typically has used language like save the planet Mm. and it's very much embedded in this idea of grasping and holding on to and preserving what still are fundamentally broken systems. Um, And uh, I, I suppose we need to relinquish, don't we? And a part of that is dealing in the present moment with the grief of what is yet to unfold. Um, on a very literal level, it's the climate lag. You know, even if we were to stop emitting right now, we would still be seeing the implications of our historic emissions for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, but also it's, you know, the fact that we're uh, perhaps it isn't right to say we've won the war on denialism because denialism is so pervasive, mm. you know. And so how do we how do we begin to navigate forward? <laughs> I, I think the denial um, can start to become more subtle. So it hides in slightly more complex things. So you'll hear from people like a lot of concern, for example, I think you mentioned this earlier about not using plastic cups and things like that. And then in the next breath, you know, oh, and where are you flying off on holiday? Or, oh, I'm going to New York shopping for Christmas. And so it it can become more subtle. Um, So that's one of the first things to say there. The other thing is, it's you. You were starting to talk about hope and about how to navigate that kind of narrative. Um, and, and one of the Im- really important things I think that we we talk about in climate psychology is about letting go of hope that uh, letting go of the old hope, letting go of hope that everything can be saved. And if we hope, we're hoping for the wrong thing. And it's about that kind of projected, invested hope in preserving everything as it was. Um, And that has to be let go of. It just has to be surrendered to. I think that was the word you used. One of the ways to face that is to face the fact that it's already too late for thousands of species. It's already too late for thousands of people. Uh, people have already died. So we have to not turn a blind eye to that. We have to turn and face that and recognize and feel the weight of that loss and that sorrow and connect with that. And that takes us into the grief. And that can be transformative. And that can take us to that paradigm shift that we were talking about before. You know, we've known about this stuff for decades, right? Decades. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you know, there were windows of opportunity in the 1980s. All of this was clearly known and not acted on. People have sort of been in denial or just dismissing it or avoiding it or, you know, um, disavowal, all sorts of things. So everyone has to have that sense of responsibility and shared belonging and responsibility and we don't want to do we because you know i want to be the good one but exactly I'm guilty and that that's Just something much, that's something that else. we've talked about yeah in the past is this savior complex oh yeah right yeah. and it's something that i have more than happily embodied mm-hmm. um and i think also because you know coming into this at the age of 11 Mm. I don't remember a time before, you know, so this is, this is my identity. This isn't, there is no separation from Clover Hogan and the mission. It's, it's always been one. Um, and 
I asked you specifically about nihilists mm. because, you know, I've kind of found my sweet spot communicating. It's what I love doing. Easily the most difficult uh, audience for me are people who entertain nihilism. And in the context of climate change, it's, you know, what is the point of any of this anyway? The earth is most likely going to be blown to smithereens in a few billion years. It's inevitable. It was going to happen from day one. You know, humans are fundamentally selfish and greedy. It's very much this Darwinian idea that we're just responding to circumstances. Um, and so I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to treat, you know, my life like a game of chess and play it for all it's worth. Um, I find this really problematic and difficult to deal with on a number of levels, but I think something that you touched on was why I struggle or why this triggers something in me is because it also holds up a mirror to perhaps the the pocket of nihilism that lives within me, right. um, the, the, the part of me that I struggle to reconcile, mm. who wishes that I lived in a bygone era before mm -hmm. climate change existed, um, before I felt this immense weight of responsibility. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I find this yeah. fascinating and it's something that I'm still digesting. Mm. Um, but I think it has been very, very healthy to actually start to at least relinquish some of that you know, messiah complex and we're going to save the world and we're going to mobilize and and actually accepting that there's a part of me that um, is really bearing the burden and the weight of this and wishes that I didn't have to. One of the difficulties of that kind of savior stuff is you lose connection with yourself, with your body, with your soul, with your humanity, with your vulnerability with your softness, with your human needs to be cared for and understood. And you turn yourself into a sort of machine, into an object. And, it, and when you lose connection with yourself in that way, then you won't notice when you're exhausted and you won't notice when things hurt. Mm -hmm. And you, will, you won't notice when people are mean to you and that's when people burn out or they get quite sort of distorted and then they stop empathizing and they stop hearing people's vulnerability. And then they start rejecting people who say, oh, I'm tired or I can't cope. And then they go, oh, you've got to cope. The risk is burnout. Um, the risk is that we're just going to be hearing one-sided communication and we will over-identify with it. And, you know, there's lots of stories of the risks of becoming that kind of savior figure. And Because they usually come in for a fall mm -hmm. sooner or later. Mm -hmm. You know, and mo a lot of stories are about people who kind of go off to save the world and fail miserably, right? Um, famous archetypal stories, right? So Luke Skywalker decides he's going to save the world, right? You know, they're archetypal stories and we should pay attention to archetypal stories because these are ancient stories any young character who wants to go off and save the world has to fail yeah right they have to uh fail they have to discover their human limitations mm. they have to um usually meet um a helper who's a bit of a joker yeah i'm thinking of donkey and shrek you know <laughs> um they have to develop some wisdom 
And you only develop that wisdom through failure. Yeah. And through meeting your limitations and through discovering that you're mortal and human and exactly. messed up slightly. Mess your own life up quite a few times. <laughs> and then you learn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, because that brings humility. Yeah. And it being, brings a sense of humor because yeah. that helps you survive and yes. it brings a bit of creativity. Yeah. And it's a bit like, well, welcome to the human race. Yeah. Because otherwise you're being driven towards perfection. And perfection is cruel. Because we're not perfect creatures. We're human beings and we're essentially flawed, right? And and then you get driven by, oh, what if people catch me out? I have to be more perfect and I have to do more and I have to do more and I have to go on all of these campaigns and I can't let anyone find out that, you know, I craved sugar last week at the door, you know? It's like, and then you start to become ashamed of who you are, that you're just human. On the flip side, I think now it has become such a noble pursuit to be a climate activist, to be a change maker, to start your own initiative. Um, Interesting, in in the research that we've been doing on the, you know, kind of psychology of agency, Mm. um, a number of young people voice that they feel stuck or helpless because they look to people their own age and they feel so inadequate when compared side by side they think that person is so much smarter or more experienced I could never do what they do and I mean that I think emerges for a batch of different reasons but perhaps it is as well that where we need to become that much better at exploring our vulnerability yeah and expressing that and being comfortable with that and through the lens of social media, not just showing the wins, but, you know, from my personal experience, talking about the days when I wake up and I have zero motivation mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, I can't be asked to get out of bed and I can't be asked to mm-hmm. go out and, you know, run a project or whatever. Yeah. And we're in deep trouble if we don't have those days yeah. because you have to go to that place. You've got to go to those shadowy places. You've got to go under. You've got to fail. You've got to get you've got to touch on depression. And this is something I feel really strongly about is the way that we pathologize depression and anxiety and any of these strong emotions as a bad thing that we've got to fix and get away from, which brings you back to this kind of perfectionism and the the disallowing, particularly of emotional distress in children and young people. Adults can be very impatient and intolerant, partly because they find it so uncomfortable and painful to witness children's pain and emotional distress and mental health difficulties. So we are particularly strongly motivated to fix them, right? And actually, a lot of children's distress and psychological problems are caused by disconnection from society, from school, from not being able to communicate with their families, with their peer group, with feeling like they don't belong. It's a psychological distress, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a psychiatric problem, right? We need more conversations like this that allow young people to actually talk about the parts of themselves that they don't feel comfortable with, that where they do feel disconnected, to give you space to say, yeah, what's it like to not want to get out of bed this morning, you know? Um, and that's okay, Oh, for heaven's sake, have those days where you don't want to get out of bed. And they're essential to you, not just because we should be allowed, not in a permissive way, but actually, paradoxically, they're essential. Because in allowing yourself to sink into that space and relax into it and allow that to be there, 
then you find the energy to come back out with something more creative than you'd never have found if you hadn't gone down there in the first place. Yeah. So Jung talks about, Carl Jung, the, the psychotherapist, uh, father of depth psychology, talked about the need to swim down into the lake um, of, of the unconscious and to, to go into the depths of the water, not to float on the surface mm. and just always be looking for surface solutions, but to go down, to go deep, to swim down. And then when you get to the bottom of the lake, to then put your hands into the mud and really feel down into what's hidden. Mm. What do you not want to look at? What part of yourself do you really not want to admit to? What parts of yourselves would you sort of die of shame if anyone found out about this, right? Because those are the parts of you that are really essential and that make that, that they, they make you whole, they make you complete. They're part of your humanity and they bring their own gifts. They're really, really important to us. But the problem is, is we're scared of them and we disallow them and then we judge them. When you were talking a few minutes ago about the sort of nihilism and the sort of the heroic saviour stuff that kind of went against that. I actually don't believe that a lot of those people are genuinely in denial. Mm. I think a lot of them uh, say they're in denial just to engage people like you and me in trying to persuade them otherwise. So what it does is it draws our energy and exhausts us because we're trying to persuade them. And we use facts and we use figures and we use carefully constructed arguments and we get utterly emotionally exhausted don't we and that's what you're talking about and then we become depressed and despairing because we haven't we've had no impact mm. well half the time um they're not actually in denial right it's just they're saying that just to keep you at arm's length because if they were being more honest and more truthful they would be saying to you something along the lines of actually i don't care what happens to you i know what's going to happen to the planet. I know the facts and figures. The predictions are correct. I know what's going to happen to you. I know I'm wiping out young people's futures, but I don't care. But I'm not going to be able to come out in the world and say, I know this and I don't care because nobody's going to like me. No one's going to vote for me. I'm not going to get away with saying that. So I'm just going to have to say I'm in climate denial because that's a smokescreen and it's mm. a distraction, mm. right? How I'm most curious about how to create a dialogue actually mm. between, you know, the protesters mm. outside of the shell building gluing themselves to the doors yeah. and the folks in the C-suite um, who they're directly protesting against. How do you even begin to create a dialogue between those polarised people? How do you begin to take away and strip back this kind of mm. finger-pointing and yelling uh, that is getting in the way yeah. of us having this conversation? What's happening is if people fall, either group, right, either the protesters eh, and the activists or the bankers, if either group falls into blame and splitting of the other, what they're doing is projecting onto the other all of the parts of themselves that they cannot tolerate, right? So there's a psychological process that goes on. But what you've got to do is find the empathy for your inner banker, mm. right? In order to empathize with their position, in order to build a bridge of communication and relationship, we need relational solutions. So you have to be able to imagine their position. So both sides have to try to do that. So the activists and people in your position have to try and find ways to communicate in ways that the people over the other side can hear, right? Because there is a part of them that can hear and will hear. But we have to 
communicate in a way that they're able then to hear and respond to. Because there is a part of them, and it might be buried, and it might be deep, but there is a part of them that is terrified, that wishes they were on the outside of the building with the activists, right? It might be deep, it might be unconscious. They may not be consciously aware of it at all, right? But it will be there. But it's in their shadow because it's disallowed. So, you know, they will be disallowing the part of themselves that wants to glue themselves to the building. And the activists are disallowing the part of themselves that wants to go make lots of money and live in a big house, yeah. right? And drive a diesel car. If we all disallow those parts of ourselves, then we will just go to war, which is the problem. The problem is, is you're fundamentally at war with yourself because these are all parts of yourself, right? So if you can heal those parts of yourself, right, and get a communication, get a relationship going between those parts of yourself individually, then you can take that out to others in the world. So if you can stop othering yourself, right, stop shaming yourself, stop hating yourself, stop thinking, you know, that these other people over there have got, we're disempowering ourselves. As soon as we think that they've got the solution, if only they would change, you can hear it in the language, completely disempowering ourselves, yeah. completely giving them all the power, projecting everything that's unwanted about ourselves into them, and then trying to dismiss them. That is the process of othering, yeah? The minute we do that, we don't allow them any humanity. And the other thing it does, which is really worrying in its extreme, is it actually legitimizes treating them as less than human. Mm. And so when we other the natural world, and when we other children, and we other women, or we other indigenous native peoples, then we don't care about them. And we disregard their human rights, or their animal rights, or their species rights. So what we've got to do, what you and I have got to do, is have a conversation where we find those parts of ourselves and we give them permission to have space within our psyche and don't shame them and disallow them and hate them because those parts are quite wounded. That's where our, we are quite wounded around our um, humanity. Mm. Yeah. Um, and they hold some of the keys to this. And if we could bring them in and stop seeing the enemy is out there and stop going to battle with ourselves then actually we'd have better communication around this. And I think the work that you're doing, you could do a lot there about enabling and teaching young people to develop that narrative. Because I think young people are more open to it. And the nice thing is it's a non-heroic approach, right? Because we have to look at our own faults and flaws and failures and shadowy stuff in order to move forward. So it's activism, yeah. right? But not in that kind of heroic, I'm going to save the world. It's activism through doing the, in, the inner work yeah. at the same time as the outer work. And getting to that place, being able to cross over that bridge, the key to it for me was forgiveness. Mm. And mm. I thought it was going to be more difficult to forgive the, you know, perpetrators yeah um those who we kind of classified as the bad guys but in fact it was most difficult to forgive myself yeah and feel compassion yeah for myself and acceptance um and extending that then into forgiveness for people who will continue to inflict harm on themselves and on the planet 10 20 50 years from now hmm. It's a long time horizon. And I think only by beginning with extending that empathy and compassion to the self 
can we ever hope to reach the level of interconnectedness mm -hmm. and network and community that is ultimately the solution to so many of these symptoms and problems that we're seeing today? We could also sort of add to that a sort of capacity to tolerate suffering mm. um, and to sort of accept that lives can't be perfect and can't be easy. We've got to give up this idea of a comfortable, easy life. We've got to learn to tolerate emotional and physical discomfort and see that as being of value because actually I don't want people to take my pain away. I don't want people to take my imperfection away. Mm. Um, I want to use that to deepen and extend my capacity to empathize and relate mm. right um and that's how you feel understood and that's how i feel understood and then you feel seen and then you feel in relationship for who you are and you feel loved and careful for who you really are as opposed to this image that you're giving Betrayed. out there yeah. right <laughs> and that's the only thing that brings some sort of sense of comfort keep that movement going between compassion for self and compassion for others compassion mm. for self compassion for others and find the beauty and the benefit of suffering because to suffer means to be touched by something because that sense of connection is probably the only thing that really carries meaning at the end of the day so that's back to that idea that you know there are some beautiful things that can come out of this as well do you think climate crisis could be our redemption? Redeeming parts of us, absolutely. But we'd have to put alongside that the genuine sense of suffering and loss and grief for for people who are feeling that, who are suffering that, right? So in terms of redemption for humanity as a whole, possibly. Not redemption for those individuals, the children in the Maldives and the South Pacific and Bangladesh, no. Um, not for the indigenous people. I don't think those people need redemption. I think they need uh, empathy and compassion and understanding and respect. Thanks for listening to this Force of Nature podcast with Caroline Hickman. You can learn more about Caroline and the Climate Psychology Alliance in the show notes. We want to hear your questions, aha moments, musings, and of course, we want to know how you're going to face up to your feelings ahead of next week's episode, when you'll be learning from Anna Jones how to stop scrolling and start solving for the planet's messiest problems. Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Feruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.